Well, uh, we finished up last time talking about some of the early Baptists in, uh, in England. And we specifically talked about people like John Smith and Thomas Elwes. And then those odd brothers, uh, praise God, bare bones. And his brother, Jesus died for the elect only, bare bones. Um, and I, I saw some lights go on in young people's eyes saying, as if they were saying to me, that's what I'm going to name my son when he's born. It works better for a son than for a daughter, I think. But anyway, so we are into the 17th century English Baptists. And uh, let me remind, remind you of something I've said before, and that is we're just skimming the surface here in the uh, time that we have because what I'm teaching you over the course of four or maybe five, if the pastor is generous, Wednesday nights is something that takes me a whole semester to cover whenever I teach this course. So, But we're hopefully hitting enough of the high points that we'll kind of get a, a grasp of it. And then if you want to go into further detail, well, we can set up a time where y'all can come to my house and we'll lay it all out in private tutoring, today. Private tutoring session. Thank you. I don't think it'll take 12 months. No. <laughs> not even, not even. It, it's about, well, it's a whole semester, three hour course. If you take out time for prayer and for the pastor or for the, I'm sorry, for the professor sometimes being a little bit late to class, it's about 30 hours of lectures that we're covering here in four or five hours. Okay. So, but we're hitting what I, what I think are the, high points, and integrating this also with the cultural and political issues that were going on at the time. And that's kind of crucial. You can't really see what the Baptists are doing in either England or America without looking at what they're dealing with politically and also in their relationship to other denominations. Now, let me just say this. And then I will mention it, mention it again. Baptists have not just been prominent in England and America. We could, we could look at German Baptists, Scandinavian Baptists, Polish Baptists, Italian Baptists, French Baptists, Baptists in Africa, Baptists in South America, and so on. But I don't even have time to cover all of that in the course that I taught for, uh, I guess, 15 years at Southern Seminary. So we're just hitting the high points of the way that it interacts with our culture and our tradition. I wish I could say more about Canadians. I'll bring them up once or twice. <laughs> okay. But uh, most of us here are Americans. And so we'll, we'll focus pro most of our attention 
on Baptists in America and their antecedents in England. All right, so let's do a little bit of the political stuff here first so we can see where these guys fit in. When Elizabeth died, as I mentioned last time, she had no heir, and so Parliament had already secured a line of succession. She had a cousin or a second cousin or a tenth cousin or something in Scotland who was the King of Scotland. James uh, was his name, and he was James the Sixth in Scotland. And when Elizabeth died in 1603, he became James the First of England. He held both monarchies at the same time. James the Sixth of Scotland is now also James the First of England. And he was king from 1603 to 25. It's under him, of course, that the King James Bible was translated. It's under him that the first Baptists in England began to take their place. That is, they founded churches. Uh, Thomas Elwes founded the first Baptist church in England in 1612. He had been over in the Netherlands, in Holland. He came back and uh, started the First Baptist Church and was promptly imprisoned and died a couple of year years later in prison. Uh, but the Baptist movement grew very, very slowly. Uh, and it grew very slowly primarily because it was illegal. The Baptists were considered to be separatists, and as separatists, separatism was an illegal movement. They were not part of the Anglican Church. And let me remind you again that in all of Europe, and specifically Western Europe, that's where our, where our attention tends to gravitate, in Western Europe, from the 4th century on, there were what we would call state churches. The state church of most of that period of history was the Roman Catholic Church. But during the Reformation, that all divided up. And so in northern Germany, the state church was Lutheran. In Switzerland, the state churches were reformed. In England, the state church was Anglican, and so on. All right? And so if you violated that, then depending on what part of Europe you lived in, you were in one degree of, or another of trouble. Now, James died in 1625, and his son Charles became King Charles I, 1625 to 42. Now, 42 is not the year of his death. Okay, so let me just take a minute or two to talk about what was happening under King Charles. Under King Charles, it became even more difficult to be a Baptist. Charles hired an archbishop. His name was Laud, L-A-U-D, and Archbishop Laud made it his point to hound all of the separatist groups 
which included the Baptists. They were not part of the Church of England, or at least they, though they were baptized Anglican when they were infants, they had broken away. And Archbishop Laud made a point to persecute them, arrest them, imprison them, and in some cases execute them. It was under Archbishop Laud's leadership uh, that, and under King Charles uh, I's leadership, that the Puritans came to America. Now remember, the Pilgrims and the Puritans are two different groups. The Pilgrims were the group that came on the Mayflower in 1620. They came from the Pilgrim Church back in the Netherlands. All right, so they came in 1620 while King James was still king. The Puritans left England, the the big bulk of the migration, beginning in 1629. Uh, they sailed over the winter, over the new year, arrived in Massachusetts in 1630. And so this is during the time of King Charles I, and during the time of, of uh, Archbishop Laud. And they were, they fled to America because they were persecuted in England by the king and by his archbishop. All right, so they, they decided to leave. Now, there was a major difference of opinion between Archbishop Laud and between King Charles I and those that Puritan party. Now, the, the, the Puritan concept is difficult in some ways. They were Reformed or Calvinistic in their theology. For the most part, there were a couple of variations, but they were Reformed in their theology and they wanted to bring about more significant reforms in the Anglican Church. The first person, the first monarch who stood against the Puritans was good Queen Elizabeth, all the way back as far as 1560. Okay. And I don't usually get a phone call at this time, so that's why I left my phone in my pocket and I shouldn't have. I don't even know who that is. Sorry about that. Pardon? Edit that out? Okay. Yeah. Um, it always happens to a pastor or a teacher, you know, at, that, at times like that. I probably have a former student who said, I'll bet he's teaching right now. Let's call him up. <laughs> anyway. So the Puritan party was there and they were in opposition to the king. Now, the Puritan party was heavily represented in English parliament. Okay. And remember that in terms of English politics, you had the king. And then you had the parliament. And going all the way back to the year 1215, when a famous document was, was penned by a group of English lords, there had been a, a distinct 
difference between king and parliament and between who had what authority, whether the king had the authority or the parliament had the authority. And that document is one that you've all heard of. It's called the big piece of paper. Anybody ever hear of that? Oh, I neglected to tell you that the Latin term for big piece of paper is the Magna Carta. Okay, so the Magna Carta, big piece of paper, and it was big, spelled out what the king's power was and what parliament's power was. And the major difference between parliament and king is parliament passed laws, differences, Parliament passes laws, not the king. King is not a tyrant. King is not a despot. King is not a dictator, not an English political life. And, and this is even more important, only the parliament can raise taxes. In fact, only the parliament can even levy a tax. They didn't have income taxes. And so if the government was going to have any revenue, Parliament had to raise that revenue. But in 1629, the same year the Puritans left for New England, the king disbanded Parliament. And he said, I don't need you. I don't like you. Too many Puritans in the Parliament. I don't want you around. Go back to your home. London is mine. You all just... uh basically take a hike. And for 11 years, Parliament never met. But something happened in 1640 that caused the king to change his mind. And here's what happened. The, remember that the king of England is also the king of Scotland at this time. But remember also that the Scots had their own church, or as they pronounce the word in Scotland, their own kirk. Okay, so if you've seen that word kirk, K-I-R-K, as in Captain Kirk, you could just call him Captain Church if you want to. Might not have liked it, but they had their own kirk. It was Presbyterian, and... um, So the Scots essentially said to the English, well, I'm sorry, the English tried to impose bishops. King Charles sent bishops up to the Scots, up to Scotland, to try to impose Anglicanism on the Scottish Kirk. Now, they didn't have bishops in Scotland because they had a Presbyterian form of government. And while I don't have time to go into the different polities between Presbyterians and Anglicans who had an Episcopal form of government, the fact is that the the Presbyterians don't have bishops. They just don't. And they never have. But Charles tried to impose bishops And the Scots said, in a pig's eye, you're not going to impose bishops on us. And so they made a decision to march down south from the north. 
and make war on England. Well, if you're the king of England and the Scots are knocking on the door, okay, they they took the city of York, which is the northernmost big city in England, was then, I think it still is today. They took York and suddenly the king needed to do something. But here's his problem. He doesn't have any money. England did not have a standing army. And the king could not impose a tax because of the big piece of paper. And so in 1640, he sends out a message to all of the people who were in Parliament saying to them, come back to London, come back to London. I really love you all. It was just a, you know, disagreement, you know, please forgive. And so they came back. But guess what? They didn't raise any money for an army. They said to the king, here's essentially what you're going to do. You're just going to surrender to the Scots and we'll let the chips fall where they may. And this created a conflict between the parliament in England and the king in England that two years later resulted in Parliament saying, take a hike, King. And Parliament took over. And so from 1642 until 1660, you have a thing, this thing called the Long Parliament, in which Parliament governed England. And not only did Parliament govern England, but in 1645, three years later, they ousted the king completely and put him on trial. And, well, they, they made war on, on the king is what they did. You had a series of, of civil wars between parliament and the king. Here's the weird thing about this. Here's the king going to a civil war against his own nation. That's kind of weird. Normally, the civil war is raised by some people who want to oust the king. But here, the king is the one who declared the civil war against parliament, against his own people. He went to war against his own people, and he lost the war. He's imprisoned in his own castle. In 1647, he's put on trial. He's found guilty. And when he is found guilty, it is off with the head. Now, cutting off the head of the king is something that you would expect from the French, not from the English. But that's what they did. They cut off the head of the king, and Parliament continued to reign for about four years. And finally, they discovered that it's really very difficult to rule a country by committee. I mean, imagine how it would be in the U.S., if instead of having a president, we had 535 presidents called the House of Representatives and the Senate, how would we pass any foreign policy? How would we get anything done? We're not getting much done as it is. And we have a president. Amen. <laughs> I was going to allow you to make that amen, <laughs> rather than me making that amen. 
But yes, I agree. And so finally in 1653, a prominent member of parliament named Oliver Cromwell became not the king. They wanted to make him king, but he said, no, no more monarch. I don't want to be king. I'll be, and the title that they gave to him was the Lord Protector, which is kind of like what England has today with a prime minister. In England today, you have a queen. She doesn't do much. She shows up for big occasions and she's very rich and she and her Sons and grandsons are always squabbling with each other. But aside from that, she doesn't do much of anything. But the prime minister has some authority. That's kind of what Oliver Cromwell became, like an early prime minister. And he will stay in that position until he died five years later. And then England was thrown back into chaos until they finally come together and they say... This rule by Parliament's not working. Oliver Cromwell, much as we respect him and revere him, and, you know, do the sign of the cross at Oliver Cromwell's name. Oh, we can't do the sign of the cross. He was a Puritan. But as much as we revered him, uh, they tried to make his son the new Lord Protector, and his son was worthless. You know, it skips a generation, as they say sometimes. And so in 1660, a move comes about for the return of the king. No, not the return of that king that you're thinking about with the Tolkien's book. But they bring Charles II's son back to the throne. I mean, to the throne. He was living in France during all that period when his father had his head chopped off and all that. Uh, but they brought him back. There was squabbling over whether he should be the next king. There's an interesting story told about one fellow who was known as the Earl of Monmouth. And the Earl of Monmouth was actually a son of Charles I, but not a legitimate son. And when he, uh, when things began to go, go haywire, the Earl of Monmouth decided to march on London, become the king, and there was a pitched battle, and they chopped off his head. And then somebody made the point, you know, he was the son of a king, and there's never been a portrait painted of him. And so they sewed his head back on and hired a portrait painter to come in and paint. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? So under Charles and afterwards, well, under Charles, Baptists were heavily persecuted. But afterwards, once the long parliament came into power, once Cromwell came into power, there was genuine religious liberty, at least compared to what they had before. And it was sort of like let a thousand flowers bloom. And the Baptists grew and flourished during this period of time. Now, before we talk any more about politics, let me introduce you to these three guys, because these are all three important Baptists from this period. And 
I'm sure you all have heard of the first one, John Bunyan. John Bunyan is famous, died in uh, 1688. Uh, Bunyan is famous for one book in particular, and the book is Pilgrim's Progress. Now, he became a Baptist during the period in which Cromwell was the Lord Protector. He'd been raised Anglican, but he was a sinner. He was not converted. All right. And in fact, when he was a teenager, uh, moms, you should probably cover your teenage boys' ears at this point. When he was a teenager, he was considered to be a great cursor or cusser. He was the best cusser in town. You know, it, I mean, it takes some skill to be a good cusser. It's like, have you ever seen the Star Trek IV film where they go back in time, Kirk and Sp- the whole Enterprise goes back in time to bring whales forward? And uh, Captain Kirk starts cursing in the film, okay, because he's back in the 20th century. And finally, Spock says, Captain, I observe you're using colorful metaphors. And he so, uh, Kirk says, well, that's the way they talked back then. And so Spock tries it out. And you can tell, even if you don't cuss, and hopefully not most of us don't cuss very often, unless you hit your thumb with a hammer. Man, you have a dispensation from me and hopefully your pastor to let out an occasional cuss word when you smash your thumb with a hammer. <laughs> you, you, got, you, got a sp- you got to pay a special extra offering that Sunday if you do. But uh, Spock tries to do it and Spock is terrible at it. And so finally, Kirk just says, uh, Spock, just stop with the colorful metaphors. You say, well, why, Captain, you use them? Yeah, but you're not very good at it, Spock, okay? Well, John Bunyan was really good at it. He was known as the best cusser in town. Don't you dare. I can just see that little malicious look. I know that look. All right. So anyway, Bunyan was a great sinner, but he was converted. And he was converted through uh, a verse. He actually didn't hear this verse in a sermon. He was riding in a wagon. And he had been going to a Baptist church. And the pastor had preached... Uh, was preaching on evangelical faith. And so Bunyan started reading his Bible, and he read this out of the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, where the Apostle Paul writes, if I can get my pages to turn, That's not the verse. Boy, you hate, don't you hate that, Pastor, when that happens? 
He has made peace through the blood of His cross. Do you remember that verse? What that verse number is? Ah, I got the pastor too. He's, he can't remember the verse. Anyway, it's in there somewhere. Um, where Bunyan read that, that God has made, made peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. And that verse of scripture gripped his heart. And he realized that it was the cross of Christ because he'd been under conviction for sin because he was a kind of a wicked guy. Verse 20, Colossians 1.20. So it's not a memory problem, it's a vision problem as I was looking at my notes this afternoon. I'm not seeing those numbers very well. Colossians 1.20, made peace through the blood of his cross. Um, and that gripped his heart and he realized that he could be at peace with God over his own sin because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. So he became a believer and he became a Baptist believer. And eventually he began to preach the gospel. By the way, he wrote a book. He's not as nearly as famous for this book as he is for Pilgrim's Progress. But if you want to, it's very short. If you want to read a short autobiography of a famous Christian, read his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. That's the title of his book. And talked, talked about that. And he said, I read that verse that day. And he said, that was a very good day. I shall not soon forget it. I mean, that's a very toned down testimony, but a very appropriate testimony. I'll remember that day, the day that I became a... Because remember, he wasn't a 10-year-old. He was a grown man. I shall not soon forget that day. Now, Bunyan began to preach. He became a pastor in the town of Bedford in England. And by that time, Charles II had become the king, and Charles II took up the whole process of persecuting Christians, Christian dissenters once again, and especially the Baptists. Charles II hated the Baptists. Uh, they, uh, he got Parliament to pass a series of laws, there were four of them in total, I won't go through the details, but a series of laws that made it illegal to meet together for Sunday worship in a place other than an Anglican, Anglican church. It made it illegal for someone to be a pastor or a preacher even if you might say, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm just a preacher, made made it all illegal to preach unless you had Anglican ordination. And if you were found guilty of committing that crime, it made it illegal for you to travel within five miles of the place that you had previously been serving as a preacher at. Okay, so... 
Clarendon Code, there were a couple of other little elements to it. But the point is that the Baptists were persecuted. John Bunyan came out of this persecution. And so in 1662, he was in prison for the first time for six years. Now, Bunyan was poor. He came from a poor family. His wife came from a poor family. This is back in the days when a woman who got married would bring a dowry to the, to the marriage. You know, usually that included things like furniture and linens and silverware and other things that her mother had, had passed, would pass on to her, perhaps been in the same family for generations. She would bring a dowry. Bunyan's wife's dowry was two books owned by her father. Okay. So that gives you an idea of how poor they were. And Bunyan, though he was a pastor, he was not paid as a pastor. Uh, a small church and Baptists in those days were poor people. Bunyan made his living by being a tinker. Now, what in the world is a tinker? Somebody that repairs things like pots and pans. That was actually a profession back in those days. Now, today, if your skillet, if the handle falls off your skillet, what do you do? Go to Walmart. Spend 15 bucks and buy a new skillet. Back in those days, that kind of stuff was not available. Not only did they not have a Walmart, but such utensils were quite expensive, cost prohibitive. And so Bunyan made his living as a tinker, repairing household items, repairing kitchen items, and so on. So when he is imprisoned and his wife has no means of income, Bunyan has to find a way to make an income. So he basically does two things. The first of which doesn't sound very manly, but he made doilies in prison. Now, if you young people don't know what a doily is, ask your mom at home. I would normally say, ask your dad at home, but he doesn't know either. All right. So he would make doilies in prison and sell them out the window of the jail. Here's the doily, two pennies for the doily. And he also wrote. And even though some writers today make a pretty good living off their writing, just think of Rick Warren or Joel Osteen or someone like that. Uh, in those days, most writers made very little off their writing. And some of us make very little off our writing today. Uh, one of my friends has written quite a bit and, uh, I've, I've published some amount myself. And he told me one day, he said, you know, publishing is an important part of it, but I can make more money speaking at a church on the weekend than I can spending two years writing a book. That's about right. All right. So, but by hook or crook, Bunyan was able to generate an income. And after six years, he was released from jail for about eight months. And then he went back to preaching and boom, back in jail for another six years. 
And then he was released from jail for about six months. And then, boom, he's back in jail for a third time. This time, not for six years, but for six months. It was during Bunyan's third imprisonment that he wrote his most famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. And that did generate some income in his day, but much more, it became a much better seller in the years since that. Uh, it's been about the somewhere between the third and fifth best-selling book in the English language in history over time. Now, Bunyan has his reward in heaven, so modern-day publishers take their part of his reward in bucks. All right. But anyway, uh, Bunyan, a very important person and a man who really did stand up in the midst of persecution. Second guy I want to say just a word or two about is Benjamin Keach. Uh, Benjamin Keach died in 1704. Keach was a pastor, and he, he pastored a larger church. He actually was able to uh, make a living off of being a pastor, one of the earliest Baptist pastors in England, not to have to work some kind of outside job. For one thing, Keach wrote hymns, and he made royalties off the hymns that he wrote. Now, this was at a time in Baptist life when there was a great deal of controversy over music. And it's more than just what we're familiar with. Um, there were some Baptist leaders in England at the time who believed that when it came to singing in the church, only the pastor should sing. I personally hold to that idea. Anyway, only the, only the pastor should sing. And they gave this as a justification. Not all persons, I'm, I'm going to use their, a quote from, from the argument. Not all persons have tunable voices. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, they must have been sitting behind me or in front of me when I was singing. Um, we can all testify to the fact that not everybody in church has a tunable voice, okay? And people in those days didn't just give the argument of, well, just make a joyful noise. No, it ought to be a tunable noise or keep your mouth shut in, in the singing service. So that was one of the controversies. A uh, second controversy controversy and a bigger controversy than that was what should we sing? Because um, in the Reformed tradition up till that time, and even afterwards, there were many who believed that the only thing we should sing in church is the Psalms. Only sing the Psalms. And if you go to some very conservative Presbyterian churches, and even some uh, very conservative Reformed Baptist churches, you'll find that's pretty much all they sing. They may have a hymnal, but it just puts music to the various psalms. And so that was a big controversy 
around the year 1700. Now, Benjamin Keach was the key figure in English Baptist life who came out and said, no, we should also sing hymns. Now, the Psalms-only crowd said, well, we're adding something to worship that's not in God's Word. And Keach argued back, well, when the pastor preaches, he doesn't just quote Scripture. He preaches a sermon based on Scripture. And as long as our hymns are based on Scripture, then there's nothing wrong with singing hymns. And Keach backed up by, as I said a moment ago, writing hymns himself. And uh, in many other books, as, uh, there are a few Keach's books that are still in print today. So uh, Keach, a very important figure. Uh, by the way, just an aside, we haven't talked about American Baptists yet. We're about to once we talk about the next guy. But Keech's son, a young man by the name of Elias Keech, uh, who was rebellious against his father. He was not converted as a young man, and he rejected his father's faith. And one of the ways that he decided he could get away from his father's influence was by coming to America. Okay, by that time, of course, the American colonies were growing, and he came to Pennsylvania, which is a place where Baptists had freedom to practice their faith, came actually to the city of Philadelphia. But when he arrived, he had pretty much not a farthing in his pocket instead of a dime. Uh, he was broke. But he heard shortly after arriving that a group of Philadelphia Baptists were going to have a meeting at a local park on a Sunday afternoon, and they were going to sing and hear preaching, and they were going to do something the Baptists do better than both of those. They were going to eat. All right? And it was going to be free. And so the hungry young Elias Keach showed up that Sunday afternoon for a free meal and met some of the Baptists who were there. And of course, they asked his name, Elias Keach, and his last name being somewhat distinct. Several of the people who were there asked him, well, are you related to the famous Benjamin Keach back in England? Well, yes, I am. He's actually my father. You're the son of Benjamin Keach. Um, if it gives me a free meal. Yeah, I'm the son of Benjamin Keach. And so once they had completed their meal, they came to him and they said, if you're the son of Benjamin Keach, you must be a preacher too. And he was an agnostic. He had rejected his father's faith, but he was very bright. And he could remember a number of his father's sermons. So he wasn't even carrying a sign that said, we'll preach for food. But that's essentially what he knew he had to do that day. And so from memory, 
he preached one of his father's sermons. And while he was preaching one of his father's sermons, he converted. He came under the conviction of the Spirit and fell on his knees at the picnic, at the park at the picnic, and gave his life to Christ. And as time went by after that, Elias Keach became a spiritual dynamo. He spread and founded dozens of churches all around Pennsylvania. But it all happened that day when he preached for food. Okay. Final person we're going to talk about is Gil. And then we're going to jump for about 10 or 15 minutes to American Baptists and then um, see if you have a question or two. John Gill died 1771. So we're marching deep into the 18th century here. Uh, Gill was in, in very many ways the most prominent of Baptist theologian pastors. And many of these guys we've talked about, Bunyan, even Keach, did not have a classical education. Back in those days, the classical education meant that you learned Latin well enough to not only read it, but speak it. Greek, not only so you could read it, but speak it. And Hebrew, at least for reading knowledge, by the time they were 19, 20, 21 years old. And that's Gill. Gill was a classically educated man, classically trained, and became a pastor at a, a church called the Horsley Down Church. Now, if you see it spelled out, it's, it looks like it says horse lie down church because it was a place where there was a stables nearby, but it was pronounced horsely down. So Gill was pastor of this church, a, a large church. Several hundred people would attend on a Sunday. That was immense in the 18th century for Baptists and really immense for a lot of churches. Uh, but Gill was a, a prominent preacher and theologian. He wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible. Now, his commentary, you can find it online, but you can also buy it in print. If you buy it in print, it takes up about this much space on your shelf. So, and, and I'm talking about huge books, double columned, small print. So here was a guy who dedicated his life not only to growing a church and to preaching the gospel, but also to becoming the Baptist theologian of his century. He also wrote what many would consider the first Baptist Systematic Theology. It's a book called The Body of Divinity. I have it. I've read, read most of it. Um, two volumes, again, small print. 
This was a guy who just lived his life to study, preach, and pastor. And because he had sufficient income from his church and from the sale of his books to supplement, he was able to do that. And so a very prominent person. Now he, like these other guys we talked about, Bunyan and Keach and Gill, were all three particular Baptists. We talked about particular Baptists last week. Uh, essentially for, uh, in, in shorthand terms, he was a Calvinistic Baptist. Now, some people have accused John Gill of being, and you, some of you have heard this term, others maybe not, a hyper-Calvinist. Let me just say one thing about that term. A hyper-Calvinist is not a Calvinist who drank too much coffee for breakfast. Okay? A hyper-Calvinist is one who holds to Calvinistic views, but who also holds to three other issues. Number one, holds to eternal justification. Now, what in the world is that? Why are you giving us a lesson in theology here at the end of your lecture? Well, we just kind of got here, all right? Holds to, holds to eternal justification. That is, justification doesn't happen at the point in time where a person believes the gospel. Justification is something that is there from eternity. Now, this is a view that Gill held. Okay? But just being a Calvinist and just holding to eternal justification doesn't make him a hyper-Calvinist. There are two other elements. In order to be a hyper-Calvinist, you have to, you have to, you have to have the whole package. A third element is that you have to hold to antinomianism. Antinomianism. Now you spell that just the way it sounds. A-N-T-I-nomianism. And antinomianism is the idea that passages that relate to the law are not important for Christian sanctification. Say again. Passages in the Bible that relate to the law, like the Ten Commandments, or other New Testament passages in which there is a moral teaching. Christians do this. Christians don't do this. Those have no necessary relationship to sanctification, to your spiritual growth. Gill did not hold that view. He was not an antinomian. And then the final issue and this one is, I think, not too hard to explain, but it may make you wonder why anyone would hold this view. But that is that there would, that one must not make a free offer of the gospel. In other words, the way I preach 
in the way your pastor, our pastor preaches is if you, if you believe, if you trust Christ, believe the gospel and come to him for salvation, he will save you. Those who reject the idea of the free offer argue you can't say that to people because there may be somebody in your congregation or in your meeting that's not one of the elect. And so you can't make a free offer, a free offer of the gospel. Now, Gill rejected that as well. And he said, look, God's smart enough to figure out who the elect are. We're not. The only way we find out who the elect are is by offering the gospel to all and the ones who receive the gospel, repent of their sins and receive Christ. Guess what? They're the elect, but we don't know who they are. Yeah. So let me clarify. You're saying that we'll, well, first of all, this no free offer the gospel is a hyper Calvinist view, but Gill did not agree with He that. did not agree with that. He was not a And he was not an antinomian. So he's not a hyper Calvinist. But he did believe in eternal justification. He did believe, yeah. So he believed part of this, but you, but he would, and, and I, I'm taking my, my analysis of this, not only from my Calvinistic theologian friends, but I studied under James Leo Garrett, who's not a Calvinist, but in his book on Baptist theology and history, he argues, what I'm giving you here is, is his argument. You have to, you have to affirm all five of these items or all four of these items in order to be a hyper-Calvinist. And so, whereas you'll hear sometimes, well, Gill was a hyper-Calvinist, he was a hyper-Calvinist. No, he was not. Now, he might have held some views like eternal justification that someone like me would disagree with. But that in and of itself, the fact that he's a five-point Calvinist, the fact that he held to eternal justification doesn't make him a hyper Calvinist if he doesn't believe if he's not an antinomian and if he didn't accept this idea that you can't make the free offer of the gospel. So the fight the, the easy memory device that that people have come with come up with for the five points. And this is not the way they're they were first presented at a conference in Holland in 16, 18, 16, 19. But it's the easiest way to remember them is it spells out the word tulip. 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 Yeah. Which, and the, this, this conference was held in the Netherlands. So tulip kind of Makes sense if you're talking about a Dutch conference. Okay. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, or what I have called the particular, uh, redemption view, which I think is a better term. In fact, I would change all the T, all the mnemonics, but this is the way to remember total depravity, 
unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Okay. Now, if we were in a class where we had an hour, I would change all those letters up because that's not the way they were presented. But in the English language version of it, uh, for the sake of memory, that's the way they're often presented. Okay. So that's guilt. Any questions about these? Th- any of these three guys? Here? Well, I mean, when we say Reformed Baptist, we're saying a Baptist who affirms the five points of Calvinism. Now, there some Reformed Baptists quibble over point number three, limited atonement. They don't like the idea that Christ died to substitute his death for the sins of those who were finally elect, for the sins of the ones who finally are saved. They don't like that. They they prefer the idea that Jesus' death on the cross accomplishes the atonement of every person. But if his atoning death accomplishes the atonement for every person, why are, why is not every person saved? And so some some way of saying it, and again, I, I've already said, I don't like the phrase limited atonement, okay? But the sentiment that lies there is one that I hold with. But some Baptists would say, well, we don't, we're only four-point Baptist, four-point four Calvinists. We don't affirm limited atonement. They're what I call Christmas Calvinists. Noel. Definite atonement or particular or particular redemption. Yeah. Boy, Pastor, did I open a can of worms for you to deal with? Well, I got to find something. I always want to create a crisis whenever I go speak at a church and leave and say, God bless you. Be warmed and filled. Now you take care of the mess I'm leaving behind. No. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Nobody else would have me, so. All right, we're we're pretty much out of time. I wanted to get the Americans. We didn't quite get there, did we? Except Elias Keach. But well, what we'll do next time is we'll jump right into the Americans and talk about some key issues related to Baptists in America, specifically in how they relate to religious liberty issues. Uh, a discussion of
Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with Baptists in, in New England is going to be part of our, our conversation. A letter he wrote to them and a gift that they gave to him as a result of writing a letter of support. A wonderful gift as far as I'm concerned. When I first told my wife about this gift, she said, can't believe. Who, who would give a gift like that? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. And, and then the first convention, missions convention of Baptists in America, and then how 30 years later that results in a split between Baptists in the North and the Southern Baptists. <laughs> what I do? What now? Are you coming to your next Wednesday? Am I coming to my next one? Are you coming next Wednesday? Oh yeah. Why? Yeah. I'm teaching here. I gotta come. You know. Well, we can extend one more week. We'd originally said three weeks, but we can go four. If you want to come back and Maybe get into American yeah. history, that'd be fine. Okay, there, mm-hmm. Or five. I don't know. Well, we're recording. Yeah. Huh? I tell you what, we can set up a lecture there at Bell. And draw a crowd and you can be selling whatever while he's teaching. That sounds good. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you a hint about Jeff. I'll just give you this hint about Jefferson and his relationship to the Baptists. If you do have a concession stand, sell cheese. Your pastor knows what I'm talking about.